0: go ahead and get started. Um, This is is a little bit of a brave new world with new technology. Um, Our first ever all digital medical grand rounds. Um, So uh, please bear with us if things don't go perfectly. I'm pretty confident that they will. Um, And really thank you all for out there for joining us um, today. We are going to strive to continue providing high quality department educational conferences uh, throughout this crisis, uh, the one that we're here to learn about this morning. And uh, we just appreciate your patience as we work through some technical challenges. Before we start today's presentation, I want to thank and recognize Ray Kulig and his team and the video conferencing services for just saying yes to providing support for this conference and really for making it possible for almost every teaching event, meeting, gathering of humans that would normally be in person to go into the virtual world basically overnight. Um, And I also want to recognize the tremendous effort that members of our department uh, are putting forward to provide exceptionally high-quality care, to nurture trainees and students, and really to take care of each other during a time of great stress. In particular, I'll call out our hospitalists, intensivists, and our dedicated and inspiring resident colleagues. Um, who've really stepped up with grace to meet patient needs and prepare for what is coming. Uh, I want to individually recognize Hillary Ryder for her remarkable leadership in this crisis um, as the residency Program Director, um, and really thank all of you for everything you've done, are doing, and will do for our community in the weeks to come. Uh, perhaps no one deserves more appreciation and admiration than our two presenters today and their colleagues in infectious disease and in international health. I'll tell you briefly about Dr. Altamere, who's primarily here to address questions related to our institutional experience, and then I'll introduce Dr. Talbot, who will first present the bigger and broader picture of COVID-19. Neither of today's speakers report any conflicts of interest, and you'll have a chance to ask either of them questions by sending an email to me towards the end of the presentation, and we will post that email uh, so you'll uh, be able to see it. Uh, Dr. Antonia Altamari is an assistant professor of medicine in the section of infectious disease in international health. She's our hospital epidemiologist and the director of the Ryan White Part D HIV program. She's a graduate of the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed her residency in internal medicine, the leadership in preventive medicine residency, and fellowship in infectious diseases here at DHNC. Dr. Altamari has had a leading role in coordinating our institutional response to the COVID-19 crisis. Dr. Elizabeth Talbot is professor of medicine and an infectious disease and tropical medicine-trained internist with extensive experience in international and domestic infectious disease control through outbreak investigation, clinical projects, research, and consultation. She trained at Duke University and with the CDC's Epidemic Epidemic Intelligence Service, and then was stationed in Botswana and was seconded to the World Health Organization for SARS-CoV-1 response before coming to Dartmouth. Since 2003, Dr. Talbot has been New Hampshire's Deputy State epidemiologist, and has responded to infectious disease outbreaks including Ebola in West Africa, the H191 pandemic, Zika in the Americas, and now COVID-19. We are incredibly fortunate to welcome both of you today, um, and uh, thank you for graciously giving us your time for this presentation when there are so many other demands on it. Thank you, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, we're paused on the CME slide, which I suppose is very familiar to us all by now. Um, it's difficult for us to, to imagine how to um, summarize what's happened to us all in these last several months. Um, and I've elected to um, focus a bit more on the emerging science than on um, aspects of the uh, state and local response and global response. and really in the interest of time. There's there's simply so much we could be talking about this morning, um, so I hope that you'll uh, appreciate a uh, focus that may not meet all your needs, but that I hope you'll find interested, interesting. Um, to make sure that we're on the same page of um, the timeline. It's remarkable that we can do a timeline in four months, right? And this is really so late-breaking. It was December 31st. We heard that the China Office of the World Health Organization was informed of a cluster of respiratory illness without obvious etiology in Wuhan City, Hubei Province, China. Um, very shortly thereafter, there have been uh, the, the initial and then multiple additional postings of the genome of this novel beta coronavirus. Um, There was an unprecedented then quarantine of of persons in Wuhan City Um, on January 16th. This was in fact credited with some unintended consequences of prompting um, a a very global dissemination as people recognized that soon they would not be able to leave back to their international and um, national homes. January 20th, we um, identified the first U.S. case, and that was in Washington State, which um, finds itself also as a center of current epidemic. January 28th, we had additional information that I find um, fascinating and informative, that the suspicion that this was a zoonotic illness had received greater credibility uh, the Ministry of Health in China had, had done some extensive environmental testing in the wet market, the, um, what was called the seafood market, where the sale of live, dead wildlife, fish and birds uh, was, was a prevalent hub for that city. And they did find that um, there, there was a heavy contamination in the stalls where the wildlife was sold. Um, January 30th, this became a uh, public health emergency of international concern, which is a declaration um, that allows some resource mobilization and um, RMD attention. Um, So speaking about that zoonotic event, uh, it it does appear to phylogenetically um, cluster with the bat cold viruses, if you will. So um, it's it's very close to um, viruses that the saddle nose bat. Uh, has, um, just as, as a reservoir, uh, a strong suspicion has emerged. Because humans don't generally have a great deal of contact intentionally to bats, uh, it, it's been thought that there is probably a bridge reservoir animal. Um, and I find it fascinating, um, although currently irrelevant, that um, the pangolin has been identified as, as a likely intermediate reservoir on the basis of recovering the virus and having it almost exact match um, for, for the, um, the novel coronavirus. The... So, January 31st, the United States public health emergency was declared. February 5th, much to many public health jurisdictions surprise, the presidential proclamation uh, restricted entry for those coming from China. And, and funneled travelers into one of seven and then 11 airports nationally. Um, and um, this, this was uh, an effort to keep the virus from entering the United States. We were instructed that this virus was most appropriately called the SARS-Coronavirus-2 because of its very uh, similar uh, features as, as SARS-Coronavirus-1, which is now the right parlance there. Um, And the disease that that virus causes is COVID-19. February 26th, the first community transmission was recognized in the United States. Uh, February 28th, the World Health Organization declared the highest global risk level and uh, expected but dreaded. Uh, March 2nd, we identified our first case in New Hampshire. March 11th, the World Health Organization declared pandemic. And on March 13th, so recent now. The U.S. and the New Hampshire uh, government declared a state of emergency. So let's talk briefly about the epidemiology. Many of you follow uh, this dashboard. There are several out there. I I like this one. This is um, a screenshot from yesterday, sorry to be 24 hours behind, Um, but I think that many of you know how to read and interpret and I hope you bookmarked it to keep up with um, the uh, global epidemiology. What's a nice feature, if you haven't played with it, is on the left bar is the total global cases, but you can then um, highlight the country of interest and, and toggle on the low bar between uh, um, state and province for, for that jurisdiction. So um, it, it's very helpful, I think, to get a sense of what's being reported in the United States, each state, for example. In the right columns, you see the total death uh, that have been documented, um, and the lower right I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. Um, It's a useful graphic. Um, So in text form, there are more than 222,000 cases reported yesterday with more than 9,000 deaths across 105 countries. China has been pretty stagnant now with about um, 81,000 cases. Um, And uh, the the real hotspot of this epidemic is is Europe and emerging as the United States. Uh, There are more than 130,000 cases um, where there is local transmission outside of China, and that's occurring in 91 countries. Um, It's really a very small phenomenon now to have imported cases with no local transmission. Uh, And then um, we've observed with some incredulity the experience on cruise ships. There have been um, about 800 cases aboard seven ships. It's really very uncertain what the actual number is given the fact that these disembark um, in an international way and people go back home and so we really don't know what that real number is, but those experiences on the diamond and the grand princess are are giving us a lot of important epidemiologic information about how this virus transmits, uh, the the rate of asymptomatic infection, um, and some other features that we'll um, try to talk about in, in greater detail. Within the graphic on the previous dashboard um, it is, is a cutout on the lower uh, right corner, which I'm sure you saw, um, and it shows that orange is, is the experience of China. Their epidemic peaked in early February, um, and now just look what's happened in the yellow bar, which is um, outside of China. So, so clearly, um, we're experiencing the acceleration phase of our pandemic. On, on the lower right is another way to illustrate this, that uh, according to World Health Region, that's how these data are reported, of course, China's pandemic in orange uh, on the left side is, is largely um, abated. In fact, they have more cases that are imported from other countries now than they do uh, than local transmission. Um, But but really what's emerging is is Europe in the darker orange, uh, and then the bright yellow we watch closely is the uh, the Americas, which of course is driven by what's happening in the United States. There are lots of ways to understand what's happening in the United States. Um, The New York Times has really stepped up with some very accessible, timely graphics. I don't know that I've ever um, called so much on the um, public press for information about the emergence, but the CDC information is is that which is in the box. They also do have a map, but it's very jurisdictionally, um, you know, as though the virus um, uh, adheres to borders, so I I like the New York Times map because it really does give you a sense of where the hotspots are Um, in New Hampshire. I know we're on the border, but I'll speak for the New Hampshire experience. Uh, This is on the homepage of our website um, and updated once a day, so not always as up to date as sometimes people like. 44 confirmed cases yesterday, um, uh, 631 tests pending, and it's it's actually far more than that by the end of the day. Um, We've tested more than 1,500, and um, that's a very dynamic number, and have um, quite a number of people on active monitoring. I think the um, addition of the New Hampshire map also gives you a sense. Uh, it does mirror very closely um, some population density, um, but of course um, your, your eyes are drawn to Grafton County where the experience here has been very personal uh, and close. So let's talk about what's driving the pandemic at this time. You know, what do we know about the epidemiologic features that can allow us to have a credible conversation about what's coming and what are the right ways to try to control it. So everything is preliminary, right? And I don't want to perseverate on this point, but, but a lot of times the initial data um, was accrued through examination of the epidemic in China uh, and, and those cases that, that give us this information are only on the severe spectrum, right? You're, you're aware that almost all the cohorts that are initially reported had to meet definitions such as hospitalization and um, the only way that they could get tested was having bilateral radiographic abnormality um, uh, and and that limited the total experience, the overall experience, and we really have a a pretty skewed uh, snapshot. But with that said, I I do think that it's settling out that the R0 is likely um, very high uh, on the order of two to three Um, So R-not speaks to uh, how many people the the average case secondarily infects. There has been a lot of attention to what are called super spreaders, where it appears there's some people who do far more transmission than two to three people. Um, But I find comfort, and I think it's a, a good talking point for us, if you will, that in studies of household contacts of confirmed cases, where there's not a lot of community transmission, it appears that there's about a 15% secondary attack rate for symptomatic disease, again, in those households. The incubation period, which is so important for us as as we um, follow people who have been uh, potentially exposed, uh, has been said from the beginning to be about five to six days with a range of zero to 14. Um, There was a recent report in in the Annals of Internal Medicine um, everything I sh- is going to be prepped with a recent report because, because where else are we going to have this data? Um, but, but this, you might want to seek out if you want greater confidence around this, but I've summarized it here. Um, they looked at 181 patients where they thought that they were most able to identify their um, moment of contact, and, and they estimate um, that the incubation is indeed 5.1 days. Um, I think that because our 14-day incubation uh, quarantine is is so disabling, especially when it's a healthcare worker, I I looked with interest on the feature that um, about 97.5% of those who would come down with disease did so within 11.5 days. So, you know, this is the kind of um, information that might inform even shaving a day or two off of our quarantine, but that's not currently um, our, our policy, but we may come to some um, manner of uh, crisis standards of care. So this last bullet is the one that is um, most depressing to me, if you will. Um, this is the serial interval. That is from the time that the one person um, becomes obvious with disease, their symptom onset, to the time that the person they'll transmit to become symptomatic is 4 to 4.6 days. And you'll notice that that um, appears to be shorter than the incubation period. So this is why we are absolutely in a dangerous place with this virus is that um, there appears to be pre-symptomatic transmission and a a really brisk transmission that makes it very hard for us to um, provide the appropriate uh, uh, enforced quarantine and isolation. Um, So modes of transmission, of course, it's no longer zoonotic, um, but really it's person to person. So to speak to what we know of the current ways that this can happen. I, you know, I should have like bolded and underlined, and et cetera, the droplet. This is what's driving the epidemic, is droplet transmission. You recall that droplets are those um, respiratory uh, detritus that can um, really only um, travel through air up to six feet, that's where this number is coming from. Um, Fomite transmission probably has, I'm afraid, more of a role than we want to admit. Um, but but it's, it's, we're waiting for better data on that. It's the Diamond Princess that likely is going to give us some, um, I think, pretty disconcerting information. I've heard some preliminary reports that um, it, it's, it's likely been something of a driver in that environment. And, and as we think of norovirus, um, it looks like COVID-19 virus is also going to show us this kind of um, fomite propensity, and that's very unfortunate. These two features of its transmission also, of course, facilitate nosocomial spread or healthcare-associated spread. Um, And I I want to say that there's no evidence of aerosol spread, meaning the the way that um, TB or measles spreads. So this virus doesn't um, seem able to suspend in the air in a sustained way, allowing us just to to walk through and, and inhale it down. Um, this, of course, is not true for aerosol-generating procedures such as BiPAP or nebulization or um, sputum induction. I, I think there's a story to be told around uh, fecal transmission. Um, this might contribute to folite, um being contaminated at potential, but as we um, get better studies around recovery of the virus through culturing, um, it does appear that um, early in the course of illness, Um, The recoverable virus is is in the upper respiratory tract, lower respiratory tract, and later in the course is is more recoverable um, out of um, feces, Um, but what role that has in transmission is certainly unclear. Vertical transmission is um, of concern, but but not well studied right now. Very small um, study that is is shown below in in the references of of just a dozen women um, who are pregnant during the course of their illness. Asymptomatic transmission deserves a slide of its own. I've already alluded to it, and and need to come back to overall population rates of asymptomatic infection can't be calculated. We need the antibody-based serosurveys in large affected populations to be performed to inform us of this. Um, A lot of the data that comes to us is um, not peer-reviewed, and the um, China CDC reports that they believe that there's approximately a one to two percent rate. Of um, uh, asymptomatic infection in their populations, but we have not vetted that data, um, and so I, I put even two question marks parenthetically following. But this is what's being promoted in, in available um, messaging from, from from other jurisdictions. Um, we were really surprised, and um, I think you know I'm, I'm letting you know as this emerges. But the World Health Organization has uh, charged the globe, charged us all to do contact tracing um, to identify persons um, who are in contact with the confirmed case two days before the symptom onset and quarantine those persons, which is a strong suggestion that they believe there's enough um, pre-symptomatic transmission at least to to warrant this this kind of public health um, recommendation. I find that to be a a very difficult one to operationalize. um. But I like Dr. Fauci's um, public persona and, and the, the common sense um, statements he's giving us to, to I think, um, help us prioritize some of our public health action, which is that the driver of respiratory outbreaks is symptomatic people, not asymptomatic carriers. Um, so there's a lot more to be learned on this, but um, we'll, we'll do that together. Regarding uh, fomite transmission, it's a very common question that I receive from um, constituents that. Um, how long does this thing last? Do I have to be worried about people passing me papers? And um, uh, that, that, that kind of very um, understandable question. Um, just, just several days ago, um, we, we've, we've seen a laboratory generated viral viability study. So this is machines generating aerosols and contaminating um, defined surfaces. So certainly not the real world. These are in settings of very controlled um, humidity, even, Um, so the the ambience for these viruses is is made somewhat ideal. Um, But the take-home points uh, are that the virus appears to be able to remain viable in uh, droplets, uh, in aerosols for hours, um, and on surfaces for hours, even to days, um, depending on the surface, uh, copper, cardboard, steel, and plastic. So, So take a look at that data if it's something that you'd like to know more about. Um, I think the conclusion is fomite transmission is plausible, um, especially at the high inoculum, so that that suggests to me that people who are most symptomatic might be most contaminating the fomites in their environment. Um, This is fully similar, almost completely analogous to data we had regarding SARS-CoV-1, so um, those data are available and and extremely comparable. I still want the talking point to be based in the reality that this virus is fragile to our usual cleaning products and the usual cleaning processes are effective to remove it from phone lines. So um, I'll leave it at that. Um, we'll transition to talk about some clinical aspects that are um, preliminary in the ways that um, I've already highlighted. That is, the cohorts are generally coming from uh, China where the definition included severe illness preferentially, and um, those hospitalized. But there are now six Chinese cohorts with tens of thousands of patients um, that, that we can um, uh, consider together. Again, they, they are reporting asymptomatics one to two percent, three percent in one outlier study, um, and the range of disease uh, is mild, severe, and fatal. Of course, um, we'll talk about um, the severe spectrum because it's um, such an important question, especially for our own. Um, fears, frankly. You know, we're, we're, we're people too. We're, we're worried about getting this, especially if we're working on the front lines of healthcare, um, but also because it helps define how we're planning for a pandemic um, that's upon us. Men predominate in all of the Chinese cohorts, um, and about half presented with underlying diseases, which turn out to be um, important um, risk factors for um, severe illness. So here is... Um, just a rundown on what they observed as common signs and symptoms. Um, importantly, I think, as we hear so many um, now vignettes of, of our own cases locally, gradual onset, this is not like flu where there's this sudden onset, but the, the difficulty for us is patients report days of, I just didn't feel right, you know, I felt tired, um, and, and then I, ha- I thought I had some muscle aches coming on, but, but not that sudden hit by a truck, event um, is common in the cohorts reported. Fever develops um, really not um, on day one, uh, but but probably a couple of days into this vague prodrome. Uh, And then the cough that is seen often in in these cases is dry, um, not productive. Um, And shortness of breath occurs very early. This is primarily a viral pneumonitis. uh, And in um, the most severe cases, a cytokine storm. So let's come back to that. Um, lymphopenia remarkably prevalent. So, in the largest cohort, up to eighty-three percent of presenting patients had lymphopenia, and certainly by definition, to qualify for testing, there was abnormal radiography. Extremely common at the time of presentation. Less common were sputum production, headache, and GI symptoms. But I want to warn you that in. Um, privileged CDC calls where they're attempting to disseminate some preliminary information. GI symptoms do appear to be more common than had been recognized in China. Um, I, I want to um, give also some uh, very uh, preliminary information that it appears that there are now two strains of this virus, um, the L and the S strain. The S is the um, strain that was in um, the original Wuhan City epicenter. Um, but there are um, predictable mutations within the coronavirus uh, that, like an RNA virus, have accumulated to the place where um, now uh, investigators are, are referring to this as, a, as two uh, really quasi species within. And whether there's any uh, differential um, pathogenicity of, of one strain over another, we, we just don't know. Um, but we'll watch that closely. Now, the important um, issues around risk for severity um, in in the cohort of uh, almost 45,000 patients, uh, we've seen um, reliably males appear to to be um, more likely to succumb to this than than women. Um, Those who have comorbidities also um, have have worse outcomes. This is intuitive for us all, but appears to be especially um, tilted toward those with cardiovascular disease. Um, and and hypertension even, Um, so uh, diabetes is a risk factor, chronic respiratory disease, um, not surprising, Uh, and those who have um, compromised immune systems or those who are using um, the the immune modulators appear to have a particularly poor outcome with this disease. The very simple public-facing spread, the pie chart of of what's coming in terms of uh, predicted severity is about 80% of people will have mild disease, uh, up to 15% will, will have um, a severe illness, probably requiring hospitalization. Um, and then 5% are expected to um, require um, uh, uh, critical support. Um, so, so this is the forward facing, we know that there's a lot more with, within this. And I think that this message has been um, you know, dramatically fumbled at the highest level of our government with regards to just just how to think about the severity that's coming to us. Um, so, so, these are some talking points that I hope you might find useful. Um, overall, the commonly quoted case fatality rate is about 1.4%, um, perhaps a bit higher. What, what we're watching in um, Italy is, is ex- of course, extraordinarily dis- disconcerting. We'll dig into those numbers in the next slide, um, but I think that um, to, to report to your patients in public, the case fatality rate appears to be between 1% uh, and 2%. Um, Another way to think about it more deeply is that there's an infection fatality rate, and that takes into account those who are asymptomatic or subclinical and don't report to clinical care. And the World Health Organization is the one who is um, promoting this number as 0.5 to 1%. So that seems, of course, lower as as it's appropriately um, more encompassing of of the the more uh, population-based experience with this virus. Um, and then for comparison, like a lot of talk about, oh, it's just a bad flu. I, I, I know that you're keeping up with this data, but, but le- let me give you my own talking points is that the seasonal influenza case fatality rate is um, credibly estimated at 0.1%. So, so 10 to 20 times higher uh, for this virus. Um, even for that 0.1% seasonal influenza case fatality rate, there's a tremendous US impact of that disease. Um, Seasonal influenza is, is uh, accounts for 200,000 hospitalizations and 35,000 deaths a year. So, you know, the, the the super simple math is go 10 to 20 times higher than that potentially. Um, I've also heard a comparison with the H1N1 pandemic. Oh, it was just a bad cold, nothing really, you know, to worry about. When when that happened, public health was crying wolf. But I would um, harken you back to the uh, summary case fatality rate of that was four times higher than su- seasonal influenza, 0.4%. It would be wrong to, to make the comparison with the other zoonotic coronaviruses, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV, which are 10 and 35% respectively. So, um, you know, that, that's a, a bright spot. We're not in that range anyway, which um, you know, I can't even think through um, with you. There, So I'm going to change the slide to um, case fatality rate by location. And the reason I haven't changed yet is I want to um, give that nod yet again, that these are very preliminary data. And and I know um, we're all um, quite interested in how we fall in this in our own um, age bracket. But let me show you what I know so far. So the China data um, where the fatalities are broken out by age um, is shown on the far left. So, uh, for example, younger populations at 0.2%, um, that, that feels um, you know, more close to what we expect for seasonal influenza, but in the higher age groups, it takes off at about 50 to 59 at 1.3%, 60 to 69 year olds, 3.6%, and 70 to 79, eight, you're older than 80, they were observing an almost 15% mortality. Um, I, you know, it, Sequentially, the South Korean um, CDC put out um, a very small um, experience of mortality. They had 67 deaths, so I find this data to be less um, robust, but the same phenomenon, that the older you are, the less good your outcomes are. Uh, So putting that aside, because it's a small cohort, um, Italy now is able to report on their 2,900 deaths. It's really not well understood right now why even by age cohort this mortality is higher than had been observed in China, but, but here it is. Um, they saw no mortality in those less than 30 years old, um, but by the time you were 50 to 59, you're looking at a 10 time greater than um, seasonal influenza, 60 to 69, 3.9%, 70 to 79, 13.4%, um, and then the numbers above that are, are small, but in terms of the cohort size, but um, translate to very high case fatality rates. So there is a very recent, (laughs) there it is again, like yesterday, I think, or two days ago, um, MMWR that came out um, from the um, COVID response team, attempting to put out some uh, early uh, experience with the U.S. cases. Um, I want to temper this. US experience with the fact that it, it accrued patients through March 16th, so they can't possibly have seen the entire course of those patients' illness. And I, I have to recognize um, publicly here that um, th- these numbers are going to be higher once the patient has come through their entire illness. So these can be misleading in, in the, the uh, degree that they're less than Italy. You know, I just don't know how much stock to put in them, but, but there they are for you. Um, Also, as as described in the bottom text in the U.S., uh, about 14 to 20% of those that we consider in the age um, cohort that is less likely to have severe disease, those still needed hospitalization um, and 2 to 4% required ICU, even in the age group of 20 to 44. So um, I would not dismiss the lower age cohorts because their mortality, their case fatality rates seem lower and they still will represent a burden on our health systems for sure. The care, um, the available reports and suggestions are mostly limited to inpatients with pneumonia and um, what we expect over the course of a person's illness with this viral pneumonitis uh, is um, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, cohorts suggest 17 to 29% of hospitalized patients will so progress. Um, 10% of those who have been um, ventilated um, and acutely ill um, may go on to secondary infection, but that's no surprise to anyone here. Current recommendations are that um, you don't presumptively treat for bacterial superinfection. It seems to be um, just um, as, as it is in the course of any acute illness unlike influenza, where secondary bacterial pneumonia is is much more a a cause of um, morbidity and mortality. Um, The timing for clinical deterioration appears to be um, in the second week of illness, uh, and the total duration of person's experience in intensive care is is usually measured in weeks, which will also burden our systems. Um, I'd like to turn to what we know of treatment. I'll do this briefly in the interest of time. I still find that um, it'll be um, probably most useful to you if we allow some time for questions, particularly drawing in um, Dr. Altamari. Um, so there are many, many therapeutic studies that have or will start. Um, I, I think of it in terms of the repurposed drugs that we already have as FDA approved and then the new approaches. Those that are repurposed and immediately available um, are chloroquine uh, and lopinavir or tonavir or calitra used for HIV care. Um, those drugs shown to the right for repurposed uh, drugs is, are weak, so um, these are now being studied only as part of drug combinations, potentially to prevent the emergence of viral resistance or to get a little extra boost, but should not be used in isolation. The new approaches uh, are uh, remdesivir, um, the use of survivors' antibodies, uh, or monoclonally created such, uh, and then monoclonal antibodies that are themselves antiviral or target um, IL-6 For the purpose of turning off the um, cytokine storm syndrome, and this is um, tacaluzumab, not not really rolling off my uh, tongue yet, but I think it will over time. So um, just two slides on chloroquine, uh, part because um, our president stood up and said what a great drug it was, so let's just um, temper enthusiasm. Um, so it's, a, it's available in three forms, the sulfate, a phosphate salt of chloroquine, and then hydroxychloroquine, which is often used in the rheumatologic arena and ter- tends to have a greater um, uh, national supply, so it is being drawn on. Um, gratefully, it does appear that hydroxychloroquine may have more uh, antiviral activity than um, the routine antimalarial chloroquine, so there's that. Um, it's funny, I hadn't recognized it before all this happened, but um, others had since 1960 recognized that um, chloroquine has a broad-spectrum antiviral activity. Its mechanism of action is increasing the pH of phagolysosomes, interrupting virus and cell fusion, and it interferes with like glycosylation like of cell receptors of SARS-CoV-2. Um, in other efforts to show that chloroquine can be used as an antiviral, there is an unfortunate track record where there's a nice in vitro response, but then in vivo translation failed. This is especially um, noteworthy for chikungunya, abbreviated here as chick, um, and even worse than not working, it, it appeared to make um, the sequela of arthritis that's unique to that arthritogenic virus even worse. So I, I have some um, reservation uh, just based on this kind of data, but um, yesterday I, I um, received from <laughs> Jeff Parsonet a preprint of um, a study that has a lot of attention um, with the lead author, Gotret, um, and Raoul as the uh, senior author, that they um, treated 20 uh, non-critical patients with daily oral hydroxychloroquine and some of those also received azithromycin, which has um, some weak antiviral activity as well, <clears throat> so 70% of these patients, some of whom were even asymptomatic, um, but, but they monitored closely for um, viral RNA clearance or viral virus itself clearance, showed significant reduction of viral load at day six, um, and they have announced that there's a shorter duration of carriage um, so, this is not peer reviewed at this time. This is the graphic from it. So, I think at first glance, this, this makes chloroquine look really good. Um, as, as said, we, we need to see um, a, a much greater experience with it. Um, it will still, it is still finding its way into our um, current armamentarium, um, and, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, there have been systematic reviews of lopinavir, ritonavir that uh, HIV drug also called Kaletra for um, SARS-CoV-1 use. Um, I'm not gonna review these data um, for us here in the interest of time. um, It's also been applied to a closely related additional zoonotic uh, coronavirus, MERS-CoV, where it it did seem to be protective, like a preventive drug. Um, But a lot of these trials are are fraught with um, uh, side effects such as um, uh, GI and elevation of LFTs. Right now, for the use of SARS-CoV-2, we're getting a trickle of data. I can't even believe that in our um, medical grounds I'm presenting trials of 18 patients and single patients, but this is the um, state of affairs. There is now a uh, randomized control open-label trial of hospitalized adults with confirmed disease. Um, uh, They they have 100 receiving uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, and 99 getting standard of care. Um, and the, uh, the publication of the New England Journal is accompanied by an important uh, commentary, um, but in fact, the talking points are there appears to be no statistically significant difference in time to recovery, mortality, and viral clearance. Um, 13% of these patients had to discontinue due to side effects, um, but there is an intention-to-treat analysis where there, there may be some um, benefit that has to be teased out through the use of larger cohorts of better to patients. The real story for treatment is um, emerging out of um, remdesivir. This is not um, uh, as, as new as um, would be reflected by the fact most people have never heard of it. It was developed by uh, Gilead, CDC, and U.S. AMRID in 2014 as an intravenous nucleotide analog broad-spectrum antiviral um, that blocks RNA preliminase, so again, that broad spectrum since RNA viruses need that um, enzyme to work for the purpose of (coughs) treating Ebola. Um, NIH dropped it from their Ebola trial in the Democratic Republic of Congo because um, they had other agents that were performing better. Um, Since there's been a signal of um, utility, China filed a patent against Gilead Sciences, already existing 2016 patent, which I just would add parenthetically, is is the kind of action that um, dissuades companies, uh, the, the private sector from developing drugs like this. That story remains to be told. Um, Right now, there is access to the drug um, through that simple email address, but at this institution, um, we we have um, um, a a formal way to uh, uh, access this drug for our patients. I'll talk about that in a moment. So most of the preliminary data is MERS-CoV and SARS-CoV-1. There's a mouse model. In MERS-CoV-2, there's a monkey model um, showing um, less disease if you treat um, somebody, after inoculation and it seems to also prevent disease or prevent serious disease if you prophylax. So um, you can look at those data, but I think most interesting is the SARS-CoV-2 experience. Um, The first effort was to combine it with chloroquine uh, and there was in vitro data that's favorable. uh, And sorry, the reference is blocking some of the text, but um, I would just wanted you to know that there's a five and 10 day course being studied and preliminary results in um, some of the trials being done are expected even as early as April. Um, the Solidarity trial is World Health Organization's um, uh, leadership over um, a, a multi center study appropriately across um, different populations and um, potentially different quasi species of the virus. They're, they're studying four trial arms um, of drugs or combination of drugs. These are remdesivir alone. Uh, Kaletra alone, uh, Kaletra interferon beta, and then chloroquine. So um, we'll, we'll see what that data show. Right now, in, we're, we're pulling on the experience of some um, state jurisdictions that have more experience uh, treating patients, and, and this is the kind of algorithm that um, we, we may um, mm. adopt in our own institution where um, the decision for which treatment is dependent on patients' um a degree of illness, so whether they have um, no oxygen requirement or oxygen requirement or even those who are most severe required mechanical ventilation. So um, this this will come to you in more detail and allow your greater engagement and um, as we roll out according to what data is coming to us. I have to give a few, um, uh, I don't know, uh, historic and future comments regarding the, the testing Um, terrible start to to our response to the pandemic. Um, Many of you know that my own research is is, um, squarely in the notion that we can't control diseases without good diagnostics. So so this has been particularly um, um, painful for me. Um, Of course, one way that we control epidemics is to find every case and prevent their transmission. And so um, we were happy that CDC moved very quickly with um, a real-time reverse transcript-based PCR. They publicly posted the assay protocol January 24th. They got um, uh, FDA emergency use authorization February 4th for this. Um, <clears throat> and by February 10th, they had sent um, the test kits to partners, and then we very quickly realized that one of the primer probe sets was dysfunctional, so it was recalled. Um, so. It took um, several weeks for the FDA then to allow use of the kit. Um, so that was February 28th. Look, look how much time is now elapsing. And when we use this diagnostic, uh, we have to. In the beginning weeks, we had to send it to CDC after they approved it. So let me start there again. We have to call CDC, get a human on the line, tell the story, see if they'll test it if they receive it send it down there by courier, and then wait what they said would be a 24-hour turnaround, which turned out to be you know, up to a week at the beginning. It, it, it was infuriating for everyone uh, at every step of the way. Um, there are challenges that remain for patients at every step of the way of the patient pathway. They can't find a setting to get tested. There are settings that have run out nasopharyngeal swabs, so they can't actually sample the patients. Uh, There are settings that have run out of the viral transport media and are in some stage of validating the use of normal saline as the transport media, if you will. Um, And and then just getting a fast response, allowing appropriate public health action. This has been just enraging, frankly. Um, So yesterday, this came out from the FDA. States are now in charge of testing. We give up. You know, all this EUA delay and um, frustrations have led them to essentially throw their hands out. So this is the message to the states. You can improve your own tests. You can use whatever commercial market you want. You can use multiple swabs, and so we're on our own. The cavalry is not only not coming, it's coming to hurt us, I think. Um, So this is partly why our testing guidance um, has um, evolved to introduce, I hope, some logic with um, why are we going to test you? you know, like, and, and so I, you've seen this evolve through the Han, and it, and it does take a lot of um, digestion. <laughs> so one thing is, is relevant to this difficult patient cascade for testing is um, there are some people who have mild illness and are not in need of medical care, who can self-isolate um, and monitor for symptom progression. They may not need testing. So I just want to leave that there. Um, look at it in more detail, please use your own institutional guideline here um, and then healthcare pers- personnel return to work criteria now has a non-test based strategy which um, many of you are becoming aware of as I've also seen the institutional notices around how to employ the greater than three days and the greater than seven days um, uh, criteria. Serologic tests are what are needed for um, understanding the um, uh, certainly pre-symptomatic shedding, and also um, the rate of asymptomatics. There's some um, diagnostics already in use in the previous epicenter, and I think you all know, too, that the vaccine is really 12 to 18 months away, but there is one candidate that is an mRNA vaccine, messenger RNA, that seems um, most poised for um, uh, getting into human trials first. Putting it together, we are told Um, And it's very disconcerting um, that these data taken together suggest we should be planning for a pandemic of the 1918 um, severity. So we are um, in the very high severity, um, highly transmissible um, intersection, and this is a terrible place to be. Um, Of course, case tracing and isolation and quarantine have been our initial strategies, um, in part, greatly encouraged by the detailed published data of the strong health departments in Singapore and South Korea, showing that intense contact tracing and really intense uh, enforcement um, has, has been um, derailing to their epidemic. Um, they, these data also provide, I think, some reassuring um, information that um, almost all transmission in those settings has been through close contact and not just random um, community spread. Um, And then early testing of the contacts identifies the persons uh, who can identify persons who are incubating and pre-symptomatic and even asymptomatic. Um, But um, again, making the note that this is not the same thing as transmitting virus and creating disease in others, um, but certainly um, suggesting that in the interest of flattening this curve, we should be strictly isolating and quarantining. So our NPIs, or non-pharmaceutical interventions, are well-promoted now, and I'll um, leave this um, and, and not detail it for you. Um, you're experiencing them now yourself. It all feels very surreal um, for all of us, and, and we all have our own um, um, sadness about what's happening in our society, and you know, the graduations and the, the visits to nursing homes for loved ones, all of it is is beyond um, taking, taking it on at this meeting, but the point is we can flatten the curve, that's the rally cry. Um, So um, in the strong purple color pandemic outbreak with no intervention means that we would collapse our health system, that we would um, see mortalities more akin to Wuhan city um, than Singapore and and, and South Korea. Um, We want to spread it out, we want to slow it and dampen the um, uh, overall health effects of, of this pandemic. We are, um, of course, facing a marathon and not a sprint. This is there are no credible models that that look at this as anything other than multi-months in duration. Um, so we're all adjusting our thinking. When we think about how how successful are we going to be, um, there, I think there are some very ominous features on this virus, given the are not as described. This uh, recognition of the role of um, potentially asymptomatic or pre transmission. The capacity for some super spreader events. Um, and then um, the fact that some people, don't, uh, the majority of people don't have severe illness, so they don't even seek diagnosis. Um, they don't um, succumb to severe illness before they can transmit um, in their communities. We've had just a terrible time testing and identifying infection. Um, and then um, we're starting to see some models that suggest um, the efficacy of and resources for containment strategies. So I really like this model that came out oh, 48 hours ago, right? Um, so this is the Imperial College of London, which has been charged formally by the World Health Organization to be their collaborative, collaborative center for um, modeling. So this shows you um, how each intervention might dampen the curve. So the, the tall black peak is the do-nothing curve. And then uh, across the board, you see that it's only the most aggressive interventions including case isolation, home quarantine, and aggressive social distancing that's going to really um, substantially um, lump this uh, impact. We're translating this to what are called crisis standards of care, um, and and estimates are going to come to you about how impactful this is, but um, this is one from the NEETEC, which was established during Ebola. (coughs) Um, Very uh, preliminary data. I've also seen the SIR model, which is the susceptible infectious and recovered model for um, the the most credible model probably for modeling epidemics um, and applied to to New Hampshire. Um, I'm not going to dwell on this because, again, we're running out of time and want to provide some time for questions at least. But you'll see um, models that that come out in the days to come. And with that, I I think I'd like to stop and and say thank you for accommodating this unusual grounds for the location and also the circumstances, and the fact that um, I'm presenting such, you know, very very preliminary data. So um, we're all in this together, and thank you for accommodating this.
0: I think I can say that we're all grateful that you have pulled together this preliminary data um, so robustly. If you wouldn't mind forwarding to the slide that has the yeah. um, uh, email address, so I, I'm going to just thank all 283 of you out there who are viewing live um, and encourage you to uh, tell your colleagues who weren't able to watch live to watch the archived version which will be available. Um, And I invite your questions to this email. I will ask, I've already received a few questions, if you can try to be concise and um, uh, not forward questions that are maybe on an email chain. and I'll, I'll try to get to everybody. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask Mike if you, if it's possible, if you can hear me, uh, to make it feasible for people to see both the slide and this room without seeing all of the other rooms. I think it might be nicer for people to actually see the humans answering the questions. Um, and with that, why don't we get started? So, so I'm going to start with a question that a couple of people have asked um, related to uh, reinfection and um, whether there's, whether we should assume people who have been infected or whether we know if people have been infected are at risk for infection with the other strain we know about or perhaps other strains that uh, evolve. Um, I'm
1: I'm no longer able to remember two questions at the same time, (laughs) so so just to start there. Sure. So um, I have been following this closely as well and um, the notion that this virus um, can infect a person more than once is unlikely. So um, we, we are extrapolating from the other zoonotic coronaviruses, but also routine coronaviruses. Um, and, and now there has been a recent um, monkey model showing that um, reinfection doesn't seem possible in the short interval. So I think that that's not likely to be true. So, that, that could be some good news. I don't think, from what I can read in the genomic literature, that um, it's appropriate to call these different strains. I know that's our shorthand for it, but they're not deviated enough from one another to really qualify as different strains. And they don't, right now, seem to have a different um, virulence portfolio. So. Great. I,
0: related to that, and maybe I'll bring in Dr. Automari here, Please. people have been asking if the population that's of healthcare providers who have been infected are perhaps our most appropriate frontline folks, and um, not that they wouldn't continue to to uh, carry out infection control practices. But if that if there's any effort at uh, considering that,
2: yeah, this question um, has come up because as of right now, we're not restricting um, healthcare workers uh, based on any kind of underlying disease or age from caring um, for patients, and and obviously our Priority goal is to actually prevent infection in our healthcare workers. So, we've had a robust um, identify and isolate uh, process whereby if we feel our healthcare workers have been in contact with someone, they are quickly quarantined in order to prevent further spread both amongst our workforce but also the patients. So, at this point, we don't have any um, intention to specifically have those who have been infected care for these patients. Um, I think this needs to be kind of a collaboration amongst all our healthcare workers to um, step up and and if there's trust in our PPE and in our training, they uh, should know that we're doing everything we can to keep them protected from getting infected. Excellent.
0: So we also have a few questions about the tests, and I'll start with the sort of, um, I think, most straightforward one, which is what do we know about the test characteristics of the tests we're using here? and across
1: the country, the sensitivity and specificity of the tests. The CDC test uh, simply is reported to us as having high sensitivity and specificity. Um, we are repeatedly queried whether there's any signal of false negatives or, or the like, and, and no jurisdiction is seeing that. You know, how, how do you know? What's the gold standard, right? I mean, viral culture is not able to be done routinely, but I think our talking point is this appears to be um, highly sensitive and certainly very specific. Great.
0: Um, and then another sort of a different question about testing, which is really about understanding the incidence and prevalence of disease, given the lack of testing, and whether we are modeling that or what we know uh, or you, you know might predict about that.
1: Yeah, I mean that one of the many things keeping me up at night. You know, how long has it been circulating in our community? I I would say we've tested thousands of people um, and and had our 44 positives. um, And um, the CDC put in place uh, at their sentinel flu provider offices, a routine um, referral for um, COVID-19 testing on any flu negative ILI, influenza-like illness, and did not detect that there's been widespread community transmission outside of Washington State. It does appear that Washington State might have had unidentified um, community transmission for several weeks before things really um, tragically took off at the nursing home um, in, in, in that snow home mission, um, King County. Um,
0: I'm also getting quite a few questions about NSAIDs. Probably oh, yeah. not surprising. That information has sort of emerged in the last few days, I think, in the popular press. And there's certainly so, what should we be telling patients and um, our providers
1: about NSAIDs? Um, I'm happy to take the first run and then correct me or augment if you want, Antonio. But um, my understanding of that situation is that some um, clinicians in France on the front line have noted that the use of NSAIDs um, seemed to um, accelerate disease, but this was a completely uncontrolled, you know, observational, not that that's without ultimate credibility. But um, it, many health jurisdictions, including France's Ministry of Health, said that this was a premature observation and that um, critically ill persons in general have a vulnerability with the use of NSAIDs, making them not you know, routinely used because of um, real insufficiency and other things that can happen um, with the use of such. Anything else to add about that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that we consider it still safe to use um, in non-severe illness.
0: So, uh- Holding, yep, okay, yep, yep. we are hitting the nine o'clock mark. I think we're still live, so if you're okay, I'm gonna have got a lot of questions. I am, I'm <laughs> sorry I wasn't that so, a bit over. So no, no, it was please. perfect. Um, so some questions about uh, and th- these may be really difficult to answer, but because um, they're predicting. How often how long might we guide our high risk patients in expecting that they will need to self isolate? Do we have any estimation of that?
1: Yes. Um, <laughs> we, we had privileged information um, from, from CDC that their, their own planning is, is taking them um, to consider a recommendation certainly to extend this 15-day presidential plan um, that most credible public health authorities are suggesting that this is, is going to be um, extended for months. So maybe I'll just leave it at that, um, you can tell I'm weighing my words because it's such mm-hmm. a surreal answer, but um, in fact that that we will be disrupted for months and um, I, I just, you know, there's again so much personal tragedy associated with such. Yeah. Anything from you, Antonia?
2: I, mean, I think I, I agree with that, that's what I've been telling people only because looking at the trajectory of pieces and what has happened um, in China and Italy is that we're only at the beginning, and I don't think we're anywhere nearing have peaked in this country. And so I think it's
1: going to be when, months. When you look at those um, pandemic plans that have been um, on the shelves for decades, um, what we should consider ourselves in is the acceleration phase one. So we're really at the tip of what's coming, and nobody's kidding themselves that. Two weeks of social distancing is going to turn this thing around, not in the absence of any uh, vaccine or, or effective preventive treatments.
0: Perhaps somewhat related to that, people are asking about um, the uh, discussion about pr- potentially a reemergence of the infection in China as China steps away from precautions yep. and whether that might, what the implications of that might be.
1: Right that are not uh, is defined as the people that you can spread to um, unimmunized un- either by natural disease or vaccine. So um, the, this is a dynamic um, uh, situation with regards to herd immunity and some of those phrases you've heard. Everyone's watching closely with um, the repeated reintroductions of disease into the Wuhan province to see if um, they're, they go back to square one or whether they've achieved immunity. that. Um, prevents this virus from getting the kind of traction it had previously. So uh, we, we just don't know, um, but it's, it's being closely watched.
0: Um, Dr. Optimier, I think this might be a question for you specifically for here, but it okay. could also be generalized. Um, thoughts about protecting pregnant workers from patients who have confirmed infection?
2: Um, So this has come up a couple times, and as of now, we're not uh, restricting any healthcare worker based on um, any underlying health condition, including pregnancy, uh, because we feel that the PPE would protect them. We also have very little data, if any, coming out uh, on the uh, effect of the fetus or pregnancy with infection, and I think the study that Elizabeth had alluded to, I do not think there was any um, unintended consequences to the baby. Um, As far as we know now, it, of course, hasn't been long enough, so we don't know whether down the road there will be developmental issues, but this does not appear to be like Zika virus, which was uh, clearly um, teratogenic. Um, This does not appear to be that. So right now, we are not restricting pregnant healthcare
0: workers from caring for patients as long as they're wearing the appropriate PPE. So a a few questions about serologic testing, um, whether there's likely to be or might be a role for serological testing, either in diagnosis or in predicting recovery and potentially um, safety to
1: return to work, yeah. whatever
0: the workplace
1: uh, might be. Right. Uh, no, great. You can tell I get excited by that question because I'm a diagnostician, but um, there is, there are diagnostic tests already this is that's not rocket science like a vaccine is you know that there are di- uh, diagnostics that depend on uh, detecting antibody that's specific to this virus already and they will come to use in the. US um, certainly they will um, what we really want in terms of disease control is a rapid diagnostic something that could be you know an uh, immunochromatographic, platform like a pregnancy test or um, something people can can do at home, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have announced uh, this is a high priority for them, and they are remarkably able to translate um, ideas to people um, quickly, and I'm I'm optimistic that I think they're shooting for uh, sort of a finger prick send home test that that you can send in the results, um, which would just be absolutely remarkable, That would
2: be very helpful. Yeah. yeah,
1: How about a saliva test or something like that? Those, those could be coming. Great. Yeah.
0: Um, so, so also some questions about rates of co-infection with other viral disease. Yeah. Um, and that relates then to testing for other viral diseases. Like, yeah. but, and I, I know there were some emails that were sent across the institution yesterday about co-testing. Yeah, I think, and Elizabeth, correct me if I'm wrong,
2: so far some of the published data suggests that less than 2% um, of patients with COVID-19 are co-infected with other respiratory viruses. And in the beginning, um, especially when uh, testing capabilities were limited, we were kind of doing a tiered approach of if we did a full respiratory panel and we found an alternative diagnosis, then we didn't send um, testing on for COVID-19. That was, again, when we were in a situation where there was very little disease in our population. I think where we've changed and shifted to as of yesterday is I think we need to assume that most people potentially with respiratory syndrome are infected with COVID-19, more for the in, in the hospital infection prevention practices that we need to put in place to um, limit exposure and limit transmission. Um, that if you're thinking this is any viral process, send it for COVID testing plus minus influenza, rapid influenza, A, B, RSV, because those are intervenable uh, infections where other treatments would be appropriate. But in the end, we're most most concerned about identifying those with COVID-19 for isolation purposes. Um, So uh, in order to conserve uh, testing kits and other things, we're now recommending uh, outside of immunocompromising, critically ill patients, routine testing for other viruses probably has limited um, limited benefits and to just stick with COVID-19 plus minus a FU-A, B, R-S-D
0: test. Um, so this, this is a question about um, precautions. So if we think there's no aerosol transmission, why are we still using airborne precautions?
1: <laughs> you were ready for yeah. that. Oh, <laughs> uh, it, it's... I'm going to let Antonia you lead because this is an institutional decision. So yeah.
2: Do. So and I think um, and I think it may vary institution to institution. So there's been a lot of evolving data, as you know. Um, information is coming out hour by hour, and in the beginning, we were treating this very much like other novel respiratory illnesses, such as um, SARS, such as MERS. Um, which all, uh, including COVID-19, have CDC recommendations for airborne infection isolation, which requires the use of an N95 respirator or similar, um, with eye protection because we're concerned about the open and exposed mucous membranes, another portal of entry. Um, And in addition to that, contact precautions because of the contact nature of the droplets, both on the environment and the patient, which is the use of uh, gown and gloves. Um We are now, with more uh, scientific evidence, seeing that, like Elizabeth said, this uh, virus is not necessarily suspended in the air um, in an airborne fashion or aerosol fashion. Uh, so we don't necessarily need the negative pressure uh, room. But I think because many patients are requiring uh, high risk aerosol generating procedures like emergent intubation or nebulizers. Uh, non-invasive ventilation, such as BiPAP or CPAP, that those procedures are still at risk for generating aerosols. And we have trained um, all of our employees who have been trained have been trained on maximal protection using some kind of higher level respirator um, that's fit tested or a PAPR plus minus the goggles or face shields for protection of the eyes and the gown gloves. Uh, And we're doing this because we feel that this offers the best protection for our employees. Um, but we are, as of yesterday, moving away from perhaps the need for our patient to be in a negative pressure room just based on this new scientific data coming
1: out. Anything? No, I think that's that's a very rational approach. Um, we, we we have to balance um, resource limitations in some of our settings. Um, and um, in, in collaboration with CDC and NIOSH, uh, Our our recommendations at the state level have have been that it can be appropriate to um, obtain a specimen um, from from a patient using a a surgical mask. So there's a deviation there that I think you'll understand is is just based on emerging data.
0: So I want to be respectful of your time. It's ten minutes after the hour. I have lots of other questions coming in. If you can feel a couple more, I'll keep asking. If you tell me you need I think, to I think get it's on to
1: important your... enough, and it's nice to be back in my own institution for a change. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> <So nice to laughs> ask. I'm willing to go on. You can you can do as yeah. well, Antonia. Great. Let's okay. let's keep
0: talking. Okay. So uh,
1: some questions about the outpatient
0: world. So shifting to the less acute uh, Leo population. Um, Algorithms are telling us asymptomatic patients who uh, have exposure but no symptoms can come in for appointments to the clinic if they have other problems that need a clinic appointment. How should we approaching, would be approaching those patients when we know asymptomatic patients may be uh, transmitting the illness?
1: What's your institutional policy? Yeah, so our
0: guidance has been, and now
2: that we have um, instituted postponing any non-urgent appointments, we've always had in our scripts for the call centers uh, for patients calling in and arriving that If they um, have been exposed but are asymptomatic and they're able to postpone, we'd rather they not come into the facility, acknowledging the fact that although they're not symptomatic, there may be this uh, pre-symptomatic shedding. We had not said that they need to don any special mask or anything when they come in and we had not um, said that providers had to do that either. I think what we're really trying to do is limit Um, the exposure of those patients to the healthcare facility. So at this point, we're saying if you have been exposed, then please don't come in, um, even if you're asymptomatic. If you can delay beyond the 14 days, that would be great. On the inpatient side, um, for transfers, as of yesterday with our new protocols, we have recommended um, that if a patient needs admission for anything other than actual respiratory syndrome, that would meet definition for um, suspect COVID-19. Um, that patients who are within the 14-day incubation period of having a known exposure, we're putting in a private room on droplet
0: and contact precautions in the event that they do develop symptoms while they're here. So, uh, quest- other questions, again, sort of staying in the outpatient uh, world a little bit, but uh, maybe moving more to the AHMED world. Um, do we have a sense of evolving policies around um, uh, occupations in the medical center that will be considered best to do at home, and whether there'll be sort of larger policies to guide that. So I think Joanne had touched on this, and um,
2: there's been a lot of communication and discussion around what, I, you know, I don't really like the word, but I think they're using the word non-essential personnel, because to me, I feel like every person that works here is absolutely essential, whether it's, you know, the IT people or the direct patient care people Um, They all make this place run, Um, but I think we are all turning towards, including the clinicians, doing as much work um, in quarantine and isolation from others as possible. So we've been really trying to push not only telehealth for providers, but also now newly um, approved. Uh, just clinical phone calls that we can now potentially bill as visits. Um, and I think this will be appreciated both by our staff, but by our patients. Um, we don't want to give the perception to the patients that we're cutting off their care and that they're out there alone, but we want to stay very much connected and know that they can still get the care they need, but it's going to be a different modality going forward. Um, So as much as we can, we have been pushing for people not to come into the institution and being here today, and I was here yesterday, it was clear that there are very few people around, um, both patients and uh, staff, walking around. Um,
0: I've seen that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So and now moving to a a, a really fragile population. So um, people who are in uh, community mental health settings, homeless populations, or uh, large numbers of uh, homeless people coming into those settings. Um, and we know those people people are at risk, are vulnerable across the board. How, and, and also uh, vulnerable to uh, fear related to contact with the health department. How, how should mental, community-based mental health workers and people who are interacting with that at-risk population approach um, risk assessments uh, and protection of the healthcare worker?
2: It's
0: a big, a big question. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I guess a,
2: the general advice would be we do need to reach out to these people, to these patients. They probably need um, uh, assistance now more than ever because we're essentially uh, causing people to go into more isolation, which can certainly cause um, more depression and more anxiety. Uh, and so I really think that connectivity is important, whether that can be done via... Um, And uh, face-to-face over electronics. So, you know, FaceTime, Skype, whatever protected potential platform we can use, um, or telephone, I think is going to be a key. I think we're really trying to steer away from group settings, group meetings. Um, I know that even certain methadone clinics are now um, cutting down you know, in-person handing out meds just to really minimize that person-to-person interaction. So I think this is going to have to be a creative new future um, in order to keep our population safe and healthy.
0: And, and maybe I'll make this one last question because you've been very generous, but at some point we have to let you go <laughs> take care of this problem. <laughs> so um, as testing becomes more widely available uh, locally, um, might we ha- develop policies around routine screening of healthcare workers or other employees? Is that, I, I think other institutions have discussed that or maybe are, are doing it. Um, are we thinking about that?
2: Right. So um, when you say testing become more available, uh, <laughs> <When>? <laughs> so yes. we do have in house um, testing right now. Uh, we are using the CDC kit, but we're formulating. Um, um, other ways to perform testing that are in the works and in the validation phase. Um, I still think there are issues with testing asymptomatic people, but we at this point are truly prioritizing our healthcare workers who are symptomatic or family members of our healthcare workers who are symptomatic in order to really preserve getting our healthcare workers back into work or keeping them safe, whichever way it may be. Um, and so if we have that ability and opportunity, we are certainly prioritizing, in addition to our inpatients and, and ill, critically ill, um, to test inpatients in healthcare workers and or their
0: family members or household members. Well, thank you very, very much. I apologize to all the folks who, who emailed other questions. We, I think it's going to continue going indefinitely, and so we just have to, uh, to, to stop somewhere. This has been tremendously useful uh, for me personally, I know for the, again, many, many people watching uh, live and and I'm sure will watch it in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Anthony. Stay healthy.